Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java Junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning how to write a book and publish it in under a year, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is the founder of Manuscripts, one of the fastest growing private education companies in the U.S., and it's a community-powered writing and publishing program. Eric Kester's mission is to create 10,000 new authors in the next 10 years. He was named one of Fast Company's 50 Most Innovative People. He is also an award-winning adjunct professor at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. But Eric's journey to where he is didn't start in the startup world. He began his postgrad career journey in finance, then pivoted into law, and not long thereafter took the plunge into the world of startups venture capital, and entrepreneurship. He is also the author of two wonderful books, Super Mentors, The Ordinary Person's Guide to Asking Extraordinary People for Help, and The Penny Moors, The Curse of the Invisible Quill, which he <laughs> co-authored with his three young daughters. Eric, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? We're ready to go. It might be a little cold, but I'm gonna I fight through it. Cold coffee isn't bad coffee. That's my no. philosophy. Hey, it's still kind of warm outside here in the DC area. It's a little refreshing to have some maybe semi-warm <laughs> brew. Lukewarm blue brew. There we go. <laughs> there we go. So Eric, your LinkedIn profile says that your mission is to create 10,000 new authors in 10 years. Why? My whole entire life has been spent on trying to engage with ambitious people, whether that was in the startup world, whether that was in the, my corporate career. Particularly, I think what I started to realize when I started teaching in school and outside of it, that there is something really powerful about learning, right? Learning is an amazing thing. It's more not about the knowledge consumption, it's about the outcomes you want. What happened to me, the origin of this kind of obsession that I have with the power of a book for me, started when I did do my first book. So my first book I wrote when I was in my 20s. And it was this powerful thing for me. I mean, I didn't like some bestseller list or something like that, but it changed me. People suddenly started to offer me opportunities on boards and I got to start my first company. All these things happened because of this book project. Fast forward about 10 years later, I got asked to teach at Georgetown, which by the way, I wouldn't have gotten into Georgetown. So the fact that I get to teach there still surprises me. But it all had to do with this book, this thing that kind of demonstrated who I was, what I cared about, and that I had something to share. 
So I started teaching. I started teaching the undergraduate program in the business school about how to start a company. And after two semesters of doing it, I found myself very unfulfilled because I was teaching all these students how to start a company and yet none of them were going to start companies. So I said, I want to do something different, something that would matter. And I thought back to 10 years earlier for me, it wasn't starting a company. It wasn't getting some degree. It was all about this thing I created, this book. So three weeks before the new semester was to start, I made up my mind that I was going to make every student in that class write a book. Now, remember, these were not English students. They had no idea what they're signing up for. And I only had three weeks to figure out how the heck to do it. So I took my syllabus, which was how to start a company. I pushed control F. And every instance of the word startup, I replaced it with book. And I went in. And I will tell you that moment of going up to those students and telling them in the first class that the only thing they were graded on the semester was writing a book was one of those moments that like is seared into my brain. I remember when I said, your grade is determined on writing a book. And I remember they looked at me like I had kicked their dog. It was like fear and horror. And they looked terrified about the whole thing. But I kept going. I was like, all right, it's going to be great. We're going to learn these things together. And I remember this very vivid moment after about 15 minutes of me kind of trying to convince them this was great that a bunch of the students all kind of at the same time started taking out their phones. And it was this thing where they took out their phones, they were kind of looking at it, typing away, and like kind of they all started to smile a little bit. And I literally, this is what I thought to myself. I was like, oh, I'm connecting to them. They're getting it. They believe. No, 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 that's not what happened. In fact, they were all looking how many days left they had to drop the class. So the, the class was not going well. But at the end of that class, I remember very vividly telling the student, listen, I know this is crazy, but if you want to do this one, if you want to do something that's going to change your life, we'll do it together. As I left the class that day, I kind of could read the room and know this hadn't gone as I planned. So I thought about it. I was like, well, maybe one or two students will decide to stick around and not drop the class. So the next week I come back to class. I'm a little late, kind of a couple of minutes after the class has started. And I walk up to the classroom and there's people standing outside of the door. And I think to myself, oh God, this is not good. The dean is going to be terrible. Well, it actually turned out what had happened over that week is students started telling their friends. Overnight, that class tripled to become one of the most popular classes on campus. And, and what I realized in that moment is two big things. Number one, humans want to do things that matter. We want to work on things that mean something that are important to us that can really transform our lives. And we don't want to do it alone. So that's really the insight that I had. And since that moment eight years ago, I've helped over 2,000 people write and publish books. So really, that's what it is. I think I've, I'm 20% towards my goal. But what I realize is the power of if we want to do something that will change our lives, we have to do something that's hard and is important and means something to us. And we have to find a way to not do it alone. So that's how this became a mission. And it's been nuts. I have chills. I really do. <laughs> Just thinking about what that must have felt like when you walked in the classroom and realized that you had triple the number of students who wanted to take your course. So what ended up happening at the end of that first semester? How many students actually wrote books? Yeah, it was wild, actually. So what was fascinating about it is is not Yes, they all actually finished manuscripts, which was amazing. Most of these people had never written 5,000 words, and they all wrote 20,000, 30,000 words of content. But what was also fascinating is then, as part of that, I actually, once I started to see where this is going, I reached out to a friend of mine who happened to be a publisher. And I said, Hey, I've got some manuscripts. I'd like to like share them with you and what you think. 
And the notes came back, wow, these are really promising. Who are the authors? And I said, well, they're, they're college students. And instantly they agreed to help us help them. We took those students and a year later, the first 16 students from that class went on to publish. And then from there, hundreds more have gone on. But it's not only the book that's been powerful, it's to sort of see the other outcome. These students have gone on to win awards and start companies and do TED Talks. The outcomes are really what's most fascinating. I think what we started to see is it's not the book itself. I mean, the book, what changes in people is it changes what they believe is possible for themselves. It really unlocks their growth mindset. But the other part of it that's fascinating is the perception of them changes. So what we started to see is that when this student now who comes out and publishes a book or professional, whoever it is, right? Now, most of my authors are people who are professionals. But what happens when you do something hard, so everyone in the audience understands, writing a book is one of the most difficult things that ambitious humans do. Objectively, it's almost three times more difficult to do than getting into Harvard. So basically, only about 1.3% of people that start a book will ever finish it. When you do this thing, now you are doing something that 80% of people in the world want to do, and only 1.3% of people do. So people see you differently. The opportunities come. And that's what happened to me. That interesting thing to me is suddenly I get opportunities to start companies, to serve on boards, to sort of teach at Georgetown. And it's because that you do something that is difficult and people perceive its value. And so that's what was fascinating. My students are now getting jobs in venture capital firms. They're working in elite places. They're speaking at the UN. They're getting hired. One of my authors' book is Steph Curry's book of the month in March. And it's all because of the fact that I think when we do hard things and we put them out in the world, people change the way they perceive us today. Oh my God. That literally makes me want to cry, Eric. (laughs) To think that you are impacting so many lives in that way. I'm just thinking because so many students lack self-esteem. They don't believe in themselves. I think that's what is funny you say that. I view this as a mission because it's one of those things. That my, my real job, you know, I got this, got this name on campus that students started calling me the book professor. They said, oh, like, oh, you're the book professor, right? That's how they started to see me. And I think what I started to learn is part of what I do firmly believe that everyone should create something. And I think books are very, very powerful. You know, not everyone has to do a book, but I think a book is something that for a lot of us, it's this, this piece of our legacy. It means something. We have something to say. But I think a lot of what I learned about why have I been so successful at helping so many people who've been thinking about a book for a long time do it? The big reason, honestly, is because I believe that they can and I want to help them until they do. I, even you, right? We talked about you writing a book and I ain't leaving until we write this thing, right? And, and I think that's a lot of it is, I think a lot of people have this thing, but they don't believe in themselves as much as I do. And it's a funny thing to say, but I certainly believe that with effort, with time and with support, anyone can do something exceptional. Again, people around you believe it, believe in you. And that's where magic happens. I've worked with people who are 10 years old, literal 10 year olds who've written and published books, people in their 80s, and everyone in between. And it's not that they're exceptional. It's not that they're sort of magical people. It's just that they sort of understand that you never write alone. And when you have that community behind it, that's what I learned, right? We want to work on hard things. We just don't want to do it alone. So when you see that, remarkable things happen. So you use the word magic twice Mm -hmm. 
in that answer. And I want to say not to be defensive about this at all, because I will write a book with you, Eric, (laughs) manuscripts, I will. But I saw the magic for me and the way that the universe was communicating to me what my next step would be was the fact that this dream interview that I wanted for this new podcast, not so coincidentally called This Magic Life, happened. And in fact, it just happened a few days ago. So I do want to write this book about the magic that happens in our lives that so often we don't appreciate until we're looking in the rearview mirror and realize how much serendipity is involved in the way that our careers unfold. I want to go back to to the 2000 authors that you have worked with and taught how to be better storytellers, because you have a recent post on LinkedIn that speaks to that. And you said in your post, you don't need an outline. I start every story with three things, the three Ds, three pieces of dialogue or quotes, and you say, hear it. Three descriptive elements, see it. Three pieces of depth, deepen it. Could Mm -hmm. you kind of unpack that for us a bit more? I'll even sort of come up a high level behind it. So I think for people listening to this, whether you're wherever point you are in your career, whether you're early in your career or later on, I think a lot of what I will tell people today is I think the most important skill in life is being a better storyteller. And it's the core foundation of writing. It's the core foundation of sales, the core foundation of influence. Stories are how we learn. And and what's interesting to know, just from a research standpoint, when you think about the power of storytelling, people oftentimes think convincing people to hire you, convincing people to promote you, convincing people whatever it is, they think, well, it's all about the facts. I'm a good worker. I have good results. I have good credentials behind it. And that's very much thinking about it from a a data or an information standpoint. And what's interesting to understand about the human mind is humans make decisions based on data. So we make decisions on it. So certainly those things help, having a good background, good recommendations, good skills. But it turns out that we actually drive action based on emotion. Part of it is when people get stuck in their career, they have a hard time getting the job or promoted, it's because there's so much about the facts. I went to this good school. I have good grades. Why am I not getting hired? And the problem is because most of us are not very good at telling our story. And that's why I think storytelling is so important. And again, I believe it's critical to a great book. It's critical to great learning. And if anyone takes my classes, you'll see I am like the consummate storyteller. About probably 80% of my lectures and talks are storytelling. And that's what's important in it. The storytelling piece of it is important no matter what you do, whether you're writing, whether you're speaking, whether you're talking, or whether you're trying to influence people behind it. What's hard about it is that people don't get taught how to be better storytellers. Like it's not like most of us don't take classes on it. And most of us, especially if we're not in a creative pursuit, we don't understand it. So there's this artistic mysticism about storytelling. What I find is that part of why I'm able to produce authors who win award, 250 national book award winners or finalists in the last three years, and it's because there's a simplicity to telling a good story. That's why I tell people is when you start saying like, I've got to tell a story, you kind of need to constrain yourself so you don't run off and tell narrative. Most of us talk in narrative. Here's what I think. Here's what happens. Here's what you should do. But storytelling is really about letting us sort of showing us what's happening as opposed to telling us. How can you do that? Three things. 
to sort of show something, and especially when there's interaction, you have to have dialogue. People talk. You want to have like a communication. So you want to hear what's going on. Force yourself to say, all right, what happened? If you want to tell about why you should get promoted, say, I had this conversation with this person or I talked to this client. Start there because that helps us hear what was going on. The second one is then to sort of take us there. Show us what's actually going on. So the second D is description. Describe things. The office looked like this. My desk was like this. The weather was like that. Describe what's going on. And the third one is deepen it. Great stories teach us something. So come out and say, this was the outcome that happened from this conversation, or this is why this client sort of signed up with us, or this is why I'm able to do these things. So the three Ds are really powerful. But before you sit down and write anything, whether it's a blog that you want to write, whether it's a paper, whether it's a post on LinkedIn, I always say, what are the pieces of dialogue? Give me three of them. What are the descriptive things I'm going to describe? Give me three of them. And tell me three deepened pieces. Where can I learn and teach something? And that's the start. And from there, you force yourself basically to write a story because those things are what really happen in the story. Well, not surprisingly, in your very successful book, Super Mentors, The Ordinary Person's Guide to Asking Extraordinary People for Help, you begin with a story. I do. Yeah. <laughs> story about Rahul Rana, who was a student at Rutgers, bright, ambitious, and frustrated. Mm-hmm. And he reached out to you, Eric, because he was looking for a mentor to help him break into the venture capital world. And a friend ends up connecting him with you because you'd been a VC and an investor. And you tell him what, Eric? I said, you don't need a mentor. <laughs> this is exactly what I told him. People reach out to me all the time. Will you mentor me? Can I get some advice? Can I get those things? And I will tell you that especially all of us have become fixated on that we need this person, this Yoda, this Dumbledore, whatever it is to be our mentor and give us advice. And quite frankly, advice is kind of worthless today. You can go find better insights and tips and techniques on YouTube than you can for many of the people that are matched with as mentors. My experience with Rahul was one that I really tried to tell him that you don't need a mentor. What you need is you need a project. You need a project that you can work on that will attract mentors. Those mentors will give you opportunities and change your life. And that's what basically the insights that I learned from Super Mentor, the book was, is that I think too many people today who are ambitious, they feel like they need someone to guide them, that mentoring person. When the reality is, is that exceptional people make their own mentors. They pick a project they care about. Like Rahul, he wrote his own book. And in that book, he went on to interview dozens of successful venture capitalists, built these relationships, built something that was his own. One of the top five venture capital firms in the world read a chapter of his book and hired him on the spot. Kid from Rutgers who got rejected from 14 elite schools. He was a sophomore, got hired for a job that was not even advertised over MBAs, over all these people. And it wasn't because he had a mentor. It was because he had a project. It attracted people to it. And he was named one of the 29 most influential venture capitalists under the age of 25. What did it come from? Not a mentor. It came from a project that kind of changed his life. In your book, you actually break down mentors into two categories. Mm -hmm. Inspirational and problem solvers. So they're with you for a year or two years and more what you would probably call opportunity bursts. That's right. 
I think what's challenging about this idea of mentoring is that we think of this as this person who's supposed to guide us. Again, the visual I use for any Star Wars fans, it's like Yoda to Luke or this Dumbledore to Harry Potter or Glinda to Dorothy. This idea of this one person who's supposed to sherpa us and tell us what to do. And what we think about a lot is people who give us advice. You should follow the yellow brick road. And that idea of this fixation on there's one piece of advice that will change our lives is kind of the problem. (laughs) It's not what really happens these days. You're not one piece of advice away from success. On the other hand, you are one project away from success, right? Whether it's to launch a video series on YouTube or to put on an event or to write a book like Rahul. That idea of the project is this thing. What we find, and this is based on studying hundreds of the world's most successful people from Sheryl Sandberg and Bradley Cooper and Stephen King, all the way along, none of them had what we call this inspirational advice mentor. They all had this person who solved the problem. They opened a door for them. They created an opportunity. So that's what projects do. They're a way for us to collaborate with exceptional people. Those people that we collaborate with, they see how exceptional we are. Rahul, he's not at Harvard, but boy, this book that he wrote about is pretty interesting. And he brought these other people together. We should hire him. It's about today creating your own pathways and opportunities. Again, I tell people like you don't need a mentor. You need a project and you use that to kind of collaborate with other people. I often, for movie fans out there, I've used some examples of like The Wizard of Oz and Harry Potter and Star Wars. What I will tell you is that's not what mentoring is today. Modern mentoring is much more like Ocean's Eleven. If you've seen the movie Ocean's Eleven with, Love it. <laughs> uh, with Danny Ocean, what's interesting about it is remembering that Danny Ocean, he had this thing he wanted to accomplish. We're going to break into these banks, whatever these things are. But it's not that he went out and said, hey, I need one person to help me. He built 11 people, these casual mentoring relationships, and used them along the way. So that's what modern mentoring is, is about having a cadre of people, a set of people that are in our lives that can give us the right opportunity at the right time. So you want to have that. And that's what modern mentoring is. And so for me, I, I believe that I've had at least six super mentors in my life, but they weren't people that I set out and said, would you be my mentor? And I don't even know if they would think of me as their mentee. It's about these kind of collaborative experiences that have unlocked opportunities for me and, and others. Beautiful. Talk about your advice to aim higher ask smaller and do it again. So you build your cadre of people that you can turn to either for inspiration or problem solving. And then what do the mechanics look like? I think that part of it is we oftentimes uh, believe that this idea of finding a mentor is about the amount of time you spend with someone. So time is a very poor proxy for value creation from a mentor today. So just because someone who happens to be willing to spend an hour with us every week was willing to do it doesn't mean that that creates a lot of value. Sometimes it's quite the opposite. So just because they are accessible and willing to tell you advice doesn't mean that they are going to change your life. What I I mean in this way is that part of what we want to do is when we have this project, whatever the project is, and in the book, we lay out nine different projects that we see commonly. And this is something that having studied thousands of people now we know there's these nine projects that are collaborative. They are high signal things that you can do. And quite frankly, they're perfectly able to demonstrate your passions. But once you pick that project, then you want to aim high to get those people into it. I go back to the example of Rahul. There weren't a ton of venture capitalists at Rutgers. There were some, but he didn't limit himself by his proximity. He said, I'm going to reach out to some really exceptional people. 
And he did. He reached out to dozens and dozens of them. Now, not all of them said yes, that I would talk to you or said that they would do an interview, but enough did. The world is so accessible today. You can go on LinkedIn, you can go on the internet and find anyone. One of the people that Rahul reached out to was a guy named Josh Wolf. And Josh Wolf is arguably one of the premier venture capitalists in the world, especially on these moonshot cell companies at Lux Capital. What's interesting about this one to know is I actually know Josh. Josh is someone that I've, I've got to know. And so Rahul reached out to me and said, hey, would you introduce me to Josh? And I said, no, you don't need me to introduce you. And in fact, it's better if I don't. I'm going to show you a way so that you don't have to have me introduce you. If you're able to show your own gusto, your own hard work, your own creativity to do it, people respect that. I gave Rahul a process to do it, how he could do it, called the five-minute favor. Do something kind for someone publicly and then reach out for your ass. Josh rescheduled on Rahul like seven times after he agreed to the interview, took a long time, all these things to do it. But when he did it, suddenly in 15 minutes, he added some really valuable stuff to Rahul's book. And then Rahul sent him the chapter that he was in before it was published. And within 30 minutes of reading that first chapter, Rahul had a job offer at one of the top five VC firms. What I mean by that is aiming higher is important. You want to say, hey, could I get you involved in this book? Could I have you on this podcast? Could I get you to speak at this thing? But then you have to aim high, but you want to ask small, right? We don't need someone to meet with us every week. And then you want to keep doing it time and time again. So yeah. Rahul looks like really successful, right? Oh gosh, like I got Josh Wolf. There's probably dozens of people that didn't reply. There's probably dozens of people that didn't lead to those things, but you don't need every one of them to hit. You just need one. And if you have a big enough surface area, you make it easy enough for them to say yes, the world's your oyster pretty quickly. Love that as well. I want to flashback now, Eric, to when you were a student. You went to Marquette University in Wisconsin mm -hmm. and got a BS in not creative writing, but in finance and marketing. Did you know what you wanted to do with that degree when you graduated? I didn't, actually. I'll tell you a really interesting story on that one. When I was in high school, I started my second company. So my second company when I was in high school, really odd. There was a bunch of fortunate things that happened. But I actually wrote, at the time, three books that were published in different formats. And they were, they were all on the business side of things. They were kind of these niche publications. One of them was published through a publisher called Massey and Associates. But I had this really interesting opportunity that came to me from basically like volunteering to sit in my dad's office and answer the phones. Eventually, it led to some opportunities that, that happened there. So I was actually writing nonfiction content even before I was in college. But I will tell you, when I went to college, college is really set up to try and force a track. I was actually speaking at an event fairly recently, and, and this may come up as a bit controversial, but I was speaking to a bunch of university presidents. And one of them asked me, what is your advice, ye old rabble rouser, that you would do if you wanted to improve the education system? And I said, I would ban the major. I think majors are actually one of the biggest mistakes that exist out there. And the reason for it is because that's not actually how careers work. Only about 25% of people, did just know this, only 25% of people or less, 20-25%, depending on who you study, have a job that is related to their major. Most of us do not. 
what happens to people is they spend all this time and energy thinking about what their major should be, assuming that once they have it, then life is a success. But the reality is today is that most jobs are not things that have a major for them. <laughs> they were going to be seeing. There's no major in artificial intelligence today, yet every one of us should be understanding these things. There's no major in blockchain, yet I think that's one of the future technologies. There's no major in digital writing today, right? But there should be. I think what's important to know is if I were to give anyone in this audience here who's in school right now my own advice, it would be this. I would encourage you to go to your dean's office today and say, I would like to create my own major. And I've met dozens and dozens of students. I've worked with thousands now. And if I had to tell you one trait that tells me the most interesting ones that I would bet money on that they're going to be successful, it's students who had the guts and the creativity to create their own major. Find ways to build those things. Most schools have a way to do it. It's just that you have to like do a little bit of extra work. But what it does is A, demonstrates that this is my own path I'm going to do, opening up new opportunities for you. But the second thing that's really interesting is it gives you something really fascinating to talk about. <laughs> when you're on interviews, you made your own major. Tell me why, how. And so suddenly there's something differentiating, which is what I would tell you to do. I did not do anything about my major. In fact, picking that major was probably the biggest career mistake I made because it set me on a track that was different. And I'll tell you this one little piece of it, this little story. I had a mentor that I was matched with in college. I was this finance major. I really was doing my own thing. I mean, I was really an entrepreneur in high school and college. But I went to college because I was supposed to. Good to go to college. And this is not into it. But I, I should have listened to my own self. I had this finance major. Met with someone who supposedly been my mentor. We met one time. And in it, he said, you need to like, your resume doesn't make sense. So you need to shut this company down and go and get a job in finance. This is a true story. I know you like this one. I had a company that I was, again, doing these books and these research reports. And I was making close to $30,000 a year from this work in college, right? I was paying for my college and stuff. This guy told me that I needed to shut it down. And so I thought, well, this mentor must be smart. I shut it down. I took a job in finance. You know how much my first job out of college paid? $22,000 a year. All of it was because I was focused on advice, not opportunity. So be careful of whose advice you listen to. Just because they're in a position of power influence doesn't mean they have very good advice. A hundred thousand percent, Eric. What I tell my students and what I post on LinkedIn is that you need to, I don't care if you're 18 or if you're 28, Trust your own intuition. Do not listen to all the noise out there and let your fear shut down that intuition because of FOMO. You know yourself best. I also want to mention a terrific book, which you have probably read by David Epstein called Range. Yes. Which very much punches a big fat fist through the theory that going deep is the best way to go to build a successful career. And exactly. he makes the case in his book for basically being a the half inch yeah. deep going wide and having many different interests and whether you want to call it expertise, but don't worry, follow your interests and that's a much more productive way to spend your time. I think it's just the way that the world is moving. When I use an analogy with 
people, I say, prior generations had what we would call an escalator career. Once you get on that escalator, finance, consulting, generally speaking, you would ride that one. And there wasn't a lot of ways to sort of move up fast, but you would ride on it. You'd have to push people to get further on it. And that's just the way it was. You get on the escalator, you go. And if you want to get on another escalator, you kind of got to get off yours and start another one. So it was sort of an interesting way it was. And that, that's how careers have been. When you talk to people who are 10, 15, 20 years older than you, many times they won't understand the modern way that careers work because they grew up in the escalator economy. That's why you want to be careful about who you listen to because their path to success oftentimes was different. I picked the right track. I stayed in the escalator. I pushed myself forward a little bit, but that's really how they did it. Today, it's more like the video game. It doesn't follow those paths, which is both good and bad. It's hard to necessarily like know where you're at in it, but ultimately you have a lot more control, which I think is good. And I would make the case, don't worry about controlling your career because you are going to have so many unexpected experiences, people that you meet that are going to pull you or push you in directions that you cannot predict. Right. Think about what you enjoy, what you're good at. Now, focus on that and don't white knuckle it thinking (laughs) that you have to control the way that the job unfolds, be open to the possibilities. So you mentioned this first postgrad job earning the impressive sum of $22,000, $8,000 less than what you were earning when you were in college. You were a financial advisor at Morgan Stanley and you left after only nine months. I'm guessing why, but let me ask you why, because from there you moved to Ventana Medical Systems where you worked as a financial reporting manager. I I basically got fired. I took the job on the idea that I would have a place to learn and grow and this kind of like entrepreneurial thing. I mean, I, I came into it from, you know, I started my own company. I had these experiences and the boss that I had sort of promised a place for growth opportunity, those things. The reality was is that it was a sales organization and the goal was the number of dials per day. And I think it was obviously I tried to be creative and do things. I was living in a place that I wasn't super excited to be living in at the time and I didn't have that right fit. I quit and I went into my boss and said, hey, found another job and I told him I was leaving. And I remember his name was Mike. You can imagine the scene here. He's at his desk. I say, hey, I want to talk to you. I told him I'm leaving. And without taking his fingers up from the keyboard, he said, it's a good thing you quit because I was going to fire you on Monday. (laughs) So that was the start of that epic career of mine. But you know, I think what was interesting is the next job was very different for me. It was one that the right bosses, the right sort of sort of coaches gave me those opportunities. I think that was what it was. Is, is the 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 next job was very different for me, and that was that accelerant behind it. And those two individuals that I worked with in my next job, Dan and Nick, were super mentors. They gave me opportunities to grow. But I think part of it is that they also were very curious in the introduction of what they wanted and what I wanted. And that was kind of why I think it worked so well. I so appreciate you sharing the fact that it was a mutual decision for you to leave (laughs) Stanley. And I find it so ironic that it was a sales role and maybe you weren't thriving in it. 
because I told you when you and I chatted, as I was exploring signing on with manuscripts to write a book, that you are without a doubt one of the best salespeople I have ever come across. You're an amazing communicator. You are right on message. It's seamless. It's so seamless. And that's just a wonderful example for our young listeners to take in. It may not be that you suck at your job. It may be you have a sucky boss. You're in the wrong environment for you to thrive. It may not be the right industry for you to be in. So don't get into the whole self-hatred and beating yourself up. See it as a moment to learn. Check the box and say, I'm just not meant for this type of banking. I think what's, what's important to understand behind it is that so much of this is, is understanding that if you have people who truly want to see you grow and truly want to see you thrive, they'll help you. A lot of it, I oftentimes say, is people, too many people pick the company and not the boss. Certainly, I picked the place that was most prestigious. I was enamored with the fact that I worked for a month at the World Trade Center. So I had all these cool experiences. But I, I missed the fact that it wasn't an aligned fit for me. My boss was not the right person. And kind of the way that they wanted to help us grow was not the right one. The learning that I had behind it is that I do have a good skill. I like selling. I like communicating. I like those things. But my boss, Mike, had one way to do it. And if you didn't do it his way, you would get fired. I tried different things and they worked, but he told me, no, your job is to do what I tell you to do. And that was what it was. I think that was probably why it wasn't a fit. And the fact that I made it nine months is still a wonder to me. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, thumbs up. You have grit. So around this time, you were at Ventana uh, Medical Systems for about four years. At that point, I guess at the four-year mark or thereabouts, you enrolled in law school Mm -hmm. at George Washington University. Why did you decide that law school was the path you wanted to take? It was a very rational choice at the time. I really thought about it as a very thoughtful next step behind it. I was ambitious. My goal was to be an executive at a large company one day. That was my goal. I want to be a CEO of a large company. I was at that point in my career, my mid-20s, where you think about graduate school. What I was thinking about was, what is the path that's going to get me there? So I did this research. I looked to see the number of Fortune 500 CEOs who had a graduate degree from law schools or from MBA programs. And it turned out more of them were lawyers. So that's why I did it. It was a a really powerful skill set for me to learn. I wound up practicing law for about five or six years, had a really great experience there. And that kind of set me up to become an entrepreneur and start my own companies and be an executive. So that, that was kind of the path why I did it. It could have played out probably in many different ways, but that was certainly the logic that I went through and I enjoyed it. It was a fun, fun five years. As you intimated there, you went to work for a couple of different law firms. At the second law firm, Cooley LLP, you ended up going to a startup weekend. I don't know if our listeners are familiar with that. I know you can certainly explain what that is. And you launched your first startup out of that, learned that name, mm-hmm. and it was acquired. It was bought. <laughs> super, super crazy. So yeah, you I, were hooked. 
goes back to the origin of Super Mentors, right? That project. So that project was one that I didn't leave the law firm and say, I'm going to go start a company. I went and spent a weekend working on a project and I built relationships and friends and connections and, and all those things. And so that project was what led me to, you know, meet a, a guy who has become a longtime friend and collaborator, the guy who bought the company, his name's T. McCann. All these interesting things happen, but it didn't start by me saying, I'm going to take some risk. I clearly wanted to do something else at some point, but I didn't quit the law firm world and say, like, I'm going to start a company. I said, I'm going to work on this project. And that project led me to another project and led me to another one. But I think that's the thing is that projects to me are the single most important thing that all of us need. And I think if you don't have a project you're working on, you're missing out on an opportunity to learn, you're missing out on an opportunity to network. That's what leads to these inflection points. One of the things that's been in the research from super mentors is I studied about 6,000 people from the Forbes 30 under 30 list, people who are exceptional 20-somethings. And I wanted to figure out what tied them together. And the thesis was, well, maybe they all go to really good schools. It wasn't the case, actually. Like Only about 16% of them went to top 10 schools. They went to like 600 different schools. So it wasn't school that was that thing, the network of that one that mattered. I thought maybe it was graduate school. Like, okay, you know, I go to a fine undergrad, but I try to get into a better graduate school. Further, couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, what was interesting is more people on the list didn't go to college or dropped out than actually went to graduate school. So interesting that it wasn't that. It wasn't even starting a company. Some of them did start companies while they were in college, but many of them started later in their mid to late 20s. The biggest core thing that we found is around 84% of them had one of these demonstrated projects. They were people who were working on a project in addition to the other stuff. I have this thing that I'm doing and I'm doing this podcast. I have this event series I'm putting on. That's kind of what happened to me as I look back at those inflection points in my life. And at the core of all of them is a project. So you have since become a serial entrepreneur since that first startup weekend experience. Someone I interviewed on Time for Coffee a few years ago and has become a, a good friend of mine shared something that his music professor told him when he was a kid. He said, Steve, there are only 12 notes. It's how you arrange them that makes the music. And Steve went on to say, actually, there are 13 notes because silence is a note. And I think so often when I speak to people in a variety of different professions, I'm seeing the notes that are just being reorganized in different ways to create new opportunities. Too many people think that there's just these things, these paths, this one way behind it. So much of life is about resilience, is about trying new things, about problem solving. So I think a lot of the most interesting people I meet have stories similar to me about getting fired from their first job almost, or basically not picking the right path. The other thing to know about all of this one is that besides trying to play sweet music one day, it's okay to play stuff that's off tune for a while as we're figuring out. That's what your 20s is for. I think a lot of it is discovering what you want in your 20s, building up your kind of network along the way. The 30s is where I see a lot of people really accelerate. And then 40s is where a lot of magic happens for people. So you got a long life here. Most people that are in their 20s and 30s today will be living to hopefully 100 based on what we know. I would say, don't try to need to make sweet music on day one. Just play around improv and you'll see what happens from there. 
you mentioned magic. Among the three final questions that I try to ask all T4C guests here is whether you believe in magic. And by that, I mean the serendipities in life and can point to any moments over the course of your professional journey to date when you've had magical encounters, magical experience, whether it was a fairy dust magical experience or whether it was a shitty black magic experience, like getting fired earlier in your career and ended up pushing you or pulling you in a direction that you never could have anticipated. That's basically what I try to document in Supermentors is I call those magical moments inflection points. And I think that when you actually go back and it's a, it's an exercise I encourage everyone to do is to go back and look for those magical moments. But there are moments where your life is going on one way and suddenly something happens. And when you study people who succeed, they all have them. And usually what's at the core of them is people making their own magic, which is usually a project and a connection that they build to some human. But that combination of soup, that project that you're working on, collaboration with a set of people leads to these magical inflections. Your goal is not to have a steady progress. It's to have these bursts of opportunities that happen. And that's what, to me, magic is in life. So the other question that I ask all guests is if they would share a time in their professional life when they struggled, when they failed, when they face planted. You already alluded to the time (laughs) you got fired at age whatever it was, 22, 23. But the most important part of this story, Eric, is how you persevered and if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. I've had other moments. Like, I mean, I've had a a a startup that I started where I I was fired by my co-founder. So like these things happen. People believe that success is this steady thing behind it. But I think the most important thing I would sort of say that I've learned from it is that if you are not getting fired or getting rejected or getting turned down or whatever it is, you're not trying hard to do something different. (laughs) You're not trying hard to do something ambitious. My biggest moments in life, oftentimes those inflections came out of that. I was fired by my co-founder because the business wasn't working. And that led me to take time to work on a project with Steve Blank that led me to Georgetown and led me to this book class. That's what happens. It's not this thing like rejection is this thing. Rejection is this chance to learn and rebound. And that's kind of what success is. It's not what you do. It's how you respond to what does happen to you. I can't believe it was Steve Blank. I actually had the joy of interviewing Steve on time for coffee. What an incredible man. He's the lean startup guy. Fail fast. All right. Final question. If you could go back to Marquette and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I mean, I really, really enjoyed the experience of it. I was the student body president. I was very involved in leadership. I don't know if I would do something different because it's really hard to think about those things. But I think the biggest part of it is I would sort of say, drink it in, do all these things, try stuff do crazy stuff behind it. I had a lot of like really fun, interesting memories from the process. I think probably the biggest thing that I would do differently potentially is I would try to engage with more people who are not on campus, more alums, more connections in that sort of way. 
use this as an opportunity to build your network outside of the campus beyond that one. Especially today, the value that you can get from those affinity-based communities is huge if you give yourself the chance to build those relationships. Eric, where can our listeners find you? Google my name. I'm pretty easy to find. If anyone's interested in chatting about a book one day, like you can come and find more about me at manuscripts.com or my website is ericcluster.com. But I'm out. You can find me pretty easily and I'd love to connect with people. Don't ask me to be your mentor. Ask me, I've got this project I want to do. Can you give me some insights on how to do it well? And that will lead to some magical things between us. Eric's more recent book, Super Mentors, The Ordinary Person's Guide to Asking Extraordinary People for Help. I think you're going to want to get it and read it and learn from it. And his other wonderful book, The Penny Wars, The Curse of the Invisible Quill. You can give it to a younger brother or sister, a cousin. Maybe even read it yourself. You never know. Eric, I want to thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I so admire what you are doing, what you have done, the mission that you have. And I'm incredibly grateful for you for making time to speak with us today. You too. More soon and keep being magical. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.